All right, it's time to talk about The Wife of Bath's Tale. Uh, the Wife of Bath, I think, is one of the great characters of English literature. And one of the things that I think makes her so lively and vital is the contradictions in her personality. Uh, you see that from the very beginning of her prologue. She starts out, the very first word of her prologue is experience. It says, experience, though no authority were in the world, is right enough for me to speak of woe that is in marriage. For lordlings, since I twelve year was of age, thanked be God that is eternal on, on live, husband at church door, I have had five, if I so oft might have been wed, and all were worthy men in their degree. So she starts off saying, well, I have... I may not have, you know, authority. I may not be a learned person. I may not uh, have, a, you know, a high position in society. But my experience is what gives me the right to talk about marriage. But then immediately what she starts doing is not talking about experience. She talk, starts talking about biblical interpretation in a very defensive way. He says, but me was told certain not long ago is that since that Christ they went never but once to wedding in Cana of Galilee, that by the same example taught he me that I ne should wed but uh, be but once. I need wedded be should be but once. Uh, so here's this biblical interpretation. And she goes on and she talks about, well, it's a story about Jesus seeing the Samaritan woman at the well and goes into this fairly obscure biblical story um, and says that, you know, she had been married five times, but, uh, or, you know, was, was that fifth man her husband or not? And there's some disagreement in biblical scholars about that. And she says around line uh, uh, 28, says, uh, uh God bade us for to wax and multiply. That gentle text can I well understand. So he said, I don't know about all this complicated interpretation of this obscure story in the New Testament. But, you know, in, in Genesis, he says, be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to use that. Now, notice she's not using her experience as her authority, she's using the Bible the same way that uh, a, a clerk would use to uh, to argue a case in logic or rhetoric. Um, and she goes on. She says, "Well, Solomon, he was a wise man, and he had a, a, a lot of wives." Um, and again, she's looking at biblical precedent. She's not looking at experience. Uh, and most of this first part of her prologue is, uh, you know, a very kind of clever rhetorical interpretation of uh, the Bible to prove her case, uh, which is all well and good. But she keeps talking about it of her experience when that's not what she's actually drawing on. And she makes the argument that, well, yes, the, the Bible may praise virginity, but uh, as she says, line 81, the dart, the, the goal, is set up for virginity. Catch whoso may, who runneth best, let's see. Uh, it says, oh, okay, yes, well, maybe that perfection is for virginity, but, you know, not everybody can be perfect. Uh, or around line 105, she says, full well, you know, a lord in his household hath not every vessel all of gold, some being of tree and doing their uh, lord's service. Uh, God cleppeth folk to him in sundry wise, and everyone hath of God a proper gift. 
So she's saying, well, you know, not sure the Bible praises virginity and, and you know, not, uh, uh, but not everyone is going to be, you know, the gold. You have, you know, wooden spoons and they do quite well too. Um, she says, line 117. I, he spake to them that would live perfectly, and lordlings, by your leave, that am not I. He says, okay, yeah, uh, virginity and all that, that may be perfect, but that, that's not me. And then she goes in line 120. He says, tell me also, to what conclusion were members made of generation and of so perfect wise a right, a right you wrought? So, so why did God give us these these members, these genitals, um, he says they were marked for the purgation of urine, and are uh, both things small, was eke to know a female from a male. Um, it says, I say this, line uh, 132, that they be made for both, that is to say, for office and for ease of engendra. In, in so, yes, th- th- we have we have our genitals uh, for office for what they they do they they expel urine and for pleasure for ease um and then she goes on and says line 155 in wifehood will i use mine instrument as freely as my maker hath it sent says god gave me this gift and boy i'm going to use it Uh, mine husband shall it have both eve and morrow when that him list come forth and pay his debt an husband will i have i will not let which shall be both my debtor and my thrall and have his tribulation withal upon his flesh while that i am his wife I have the power during all my life upon his proper body, and not he. Right thus the apostle told it unto me, and bade our husbands for to love us well. Ah, all this sentence me liketh every deal. And so, she's, again, she's quoting some of the, the uh, doctrines in the Bible. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul uh, said that, you know, you're supposed to love and cherish your wife. And said, yeah, go, come and do your cherishing. Uh, again, you'll be my debtor and my thrall. Uh, so she's presenting herself there. She's a woman who likes it, and she wants her, her husband to give it to her day and night. Uh, now we're getting back into her experience. But even here, she talks about the Apostle. She always brings it back not to experience, but to Authority to the authority of, of, of learning and books. And at this point, the partner jumps in and says, I was about to wed a wife, alas, what should I uh, buy it on my flesh so dear, yet had I ever wed no wife this year? So the the partner, if you'll remember, the, the partner is kind of sexually ambiguous. The narrator said he was a gelding or a mare. Uh, he's a eunuch or homosexual or there's something strange about his sexuality. So it's interesting at this point where the, the wife is saying that her husband has to put out for her. She said, oh, the, 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 the partner says, oh, well, I'm glad I didn't marry. I mean, I, that's not for me. I'm not, not going to be doing that. Um and that interruption kind of ends the first section of her uh, uh, prologue. In the next section, we get to the autobiographical part of it. Uh, she says, line 200, um, I-, I shall say sooth, uh, though husbands that I had, as three of them were good and two were bad. The three men were good and rich and old. All right, so she divides her husbands into two groups. She's had five husbands, 
two were good, uh, three were good, two were bad. Now, the good ones were rich and old, and she seems to suggest that they were good because they were rich and old. Uh, but notice that, again, another contradiction, these good husbands are not the ones that she loved. She says, uh, a line uh, 210, they had me given their land and their treasure. Me needed not to do, uh, not do longer diligence to win their love or do them reverence. They loved me so well by God above that I had told no dainty of their love. That I had them wholly in mine hand. So these old men, they were devoted to her. They loved her. They gave her everything. And so she wasn't that interested in them. Um, and she talks about her, her strategy for how she kind of got the upper hand. Uh, and starting around line 240, she goes into this long speech. And it's just this harangue that she gave to these husbands. Uh and it says, you said this about me, and you said that about me. And the idea is that she's, they, when they come home after drinking, she, the next morning she says all of the terrible things they said to her and all the uh, accusations they made about her. Um, and, uh, you know, f- for example, look around line um, 307. Thus sayest thou, old barrel full of lies, and yet of our apprentice Jenkin, for his crisp hair shining as gold so fine, and for he squireth me both up and down, yet hast thou caught a false suspicion. I will him not, though thou wert dead tomorrow. Uh, now, this is a very interesting thing. This is the accusation. You said that I was, you know, spending too much time with Jenkin, and I was probably having a, an affair with him, and I don't care a whit about him. If you died tomorrow, I wouldn't care. Uh, of course, Jenkin is the guy that she does marry. He's one of her, the, the, the bad husbands that she has later on. So and I think the idea is a lot of these are the preemptive strikes. She's making the accusation before the husband can make it of her. And it goes on and on and on. This is long, you know, part of the the impact of the wife is the sheer amplitude, uh, the magnitude of, of the accusations that she has. So she kind of wears them down in that way. The, the spe- this speech goes all the way to around line 385. Uh, lordlings, write thus, as ye had understood, bar I stiffly mine old husbands on hand, that thus they say in, in their drunkenness, and all was false, but that I took witness on Jenkin and on my niece also. So they didn't say these things. She's just making it up, but she's got Jenkin and her niece to kind of back her up and say, oh yeah, you really did say that. Um, so that's the way that she kind of controls. She's Again, it's a preemptive strike. She's making sure that any accusation they make, she's already made it impossible for them to say because she's uh, th- she's made them apologize for it before they ever thought it. Uh, it's actually kind of sneakily brilliant. And she says, I planed first, so was our w- uh, war stint. Said, I made the first move, the first strike capability here. And another part of her strategy is she, she withholds sex as a, as a weapon around line uh, 412. Namely, a bed, hadn't they mischance, there would I chide and do them no pleasance. I would no longer in the bed abide if that I felt the arm, his arm over my side till he had made his ransom unto me. Then would I suffer him to do his nicety. 
And therefore, every man this tale I tell, when whoso may, for all is, uh, is for to sell. With empty hand men may know a hawk's, hawk's lure, for winning would I all his lust endure. Now, notice, uh, here's another contradiction. Before, be- right before the, the, the pardoner interrupted her, she was talking about how much she likes sex and she wants her husband to do what she uh, tells him in bed all the time. And here she's saying exactly the opposite. Well, I had to put up with it uh, in order to get my way. And it's it's two completely different attitudes about her sexuality. And again, what makes the, the character fascinating is those contradictions. But there's also a continuity there because in both cases – She's using her sexuality to control the men in some way, dominate them. Uh, and, and at one point she says she loves sex, one point she says she endures it. Uh, and they're probably both completely true at the moment she thinks them. But uh, again, that gives her some of the, the vitality and the complexity of a real human being. Uh, she's not just a, a two-dimensional character. And so... Having told us her her strategies for dealing with these uh, rich old husbands, she moves into the fourth husband. Now, it's interesting that the the first three husbands, there's no distinguishing about them. They're not really individuals to her. They're just, she treated them all exactly the same. Uh, And she was married very young. She says she was first married when she was 12. Uh, So she's been a wife for a long time. Uh, But these rich old husbands, she doesn't think of them as people even, really. But the fourth husband and the fifth are are much more individualized. She says, line 460, my fourth husband was a reveler. That is to say, he had a paramour, a mistress. So he's sleeping around. He's a party guy. Uh, This is, you know, this is one of her bad husbands, you know, the one that uh, she didn't like. And Look at, she says around, starts around line 475, there's this little digression. And the wife tends to digress a lot. Uh, and again, that's part of the, the, the feeling of reality with her. She feel, if this feels very much like somebody talking, uh, the way she will kind of circle back to a topic or digress and then where was I? Oh yes, I remember now. Uh, line 475. But Lord Christ, when that it remembereth me upon my youth, and on my jollity, it tickleth me about my heart a root. Unto this day, it doeth mine heart a boot, that I have had my world as in my time. But age, alas, that all will in venom, hath me bereft my beauty and my pith. Let go, farewell, the devil go therewith. The flower is gone, there, there is no more to tell. The bran is best I can, now must I sell. But yet, to be right merry will I fond. Now will I tell thee of my fourth husband. So here we get this very poignant moment. I mean, the, the wife is an, an older woman now, and she's kind of wistfully remembering her youth uh, that she's lost now. But then again, almost immediately says, oh, I don't miss it. I, you know, I, I've... I've lost the, the the flower I'll sell the the brand I mean I'll, you know you, you you use what you can uh, e- even in this little speech you see this kind of contradictory two sides of the argument at once that uh, the wife seems to always be uh, be taking um, so she begins to talk about how she was going to deal with this fourth husband 
He says that in his own Greece I made him fry for anger and for very jealousy. By God and earth I was his purgatory, for which I hope his soul be in glory. Uh, there again, she punished him. She was his purgatory. She made him fry in his own Greece. And she says, oh, I hope his soul is in heaven. I loved him so much. Uh, again, you get these wonderfully human uh, contradictions in the way the wife feels about things. Um, she starts talking about her fifth husband around line 510. Now, my fifth husband will I tell. God let his soul uh, should never come in hell. And yet he was to me the most a shrew that feel I on my ribs all by a rue and ever shall be un, un, unto mine ending day. And in our bed, but in our bed, he was so fresh and gay, and therewithal so well could he me glows that when that he would, and my bell shows that though he had me beat on every bone, he could win again my love anon. I trow I loved him best, for that he was of his love dangerous to me. We women, Han, if that I shall not lie, in this matter acquaint a fantasy. Wait what thing we may not wait uh, what uh, wait what thing we may not lightly have thereafter will we crave uh, will we cry all day and crave all right so this fourth husband she actually says he, he beat her and yet they would have these arguments and he could always win her love again it's almost like a battered spouse at this point which is the last thing you would think of the wife of bath i mean so in charge but she says she loved him best. And in the same way that she didn't value the rich old husbands, they were enthralled with her, and so she wasn't really interested in them, he, this guy withheld his love. It was hard to get his love, and that made her yearn after it the more. Again, that's very, a very human touch in her, her portrait here. Um, and she says, I took him for love and not for riches. He was a clerk at Oxenford. Okay, so we're getting a lot of Oxford clerks here, right? There's, there's one of the pilgrims on in the pilgrimage is a clerk from Oxford. In the, uh, the story that the miller told, we had a clerk from Oxford. Now we've got another one here. Uh, if you read all the Canterbury Tales, this happens a lot. They're all, it's almost like an echo chamber of different variations on these characters. And so all of these clerks are different and they're all similar in certain ways. Uh, and in fact, the clerk on the um, uh, on the pilgrimage is going to tell a story of a very different kind of wife, the patient Griselda, who no matter how her husband abuses her, she always is patient and suffering and long-suffering and uh, endures everything, Qu quite the opposite of the wife. Uh, but anyway, and the, back to back to this, the story of Jankin, the, this young clerk who she uh, marries. And she says here pretty explicitly that she was flirting with Jankin while she was still married to her fourth husband. You know, she told him that if she was a widow, he would want to wed him. Um, uh, look at uh, around line 603. Uh, and help me God... When that I saw him go after the, the beer, methought he had a pair of legs and a feet so clean and fair that all mine heart I gave unto his hold. He was, I trow, twenty winter old, and I was forty, if I shall say a sooth. 
but yet I had always a colt's tooth, gap tooth I was, and that became, became me well. So she's twice this man's age. She's 40 and he's 20. That's, uh, that's an unusual age gap today. It was quite unusual in Chaucer's time. And here she says, uh, line 615, that I am all Venerian, that is the under sign of Venus in feeling, and mine heart is Martian, the, sun, the, the Mars, the god of war. Venus, the goddess of love, me, gave, me, gave me lust, my likerousness, and Mars gave me my sturdy hardiness. Uh, so she's like a, a combination of this amorous, Venus and this, you know, warlike Mars. Um, so we get uh, line uh, 634. She's describing this jolly clerk, Jankin, that was so Hindi, had wed me with great solemnity. Now, there's that word Hindi. Remember, that's exactly the word that the Miller used to describe his clerk. Again, these echoes are uh, coming up. Um, she says, by God, he smote me once on the list for that I rent out of his book a leaf that of that stroke mine ear wax all deaf. And remember, the very first, one of the very first things we hear in the, the wife of Bath's description in the general prologue, uh, a good a wife was there of besieged Bath, but she was some deal deaf, and that was scath. Well, here we get the story of her deafness. Uh, the, her husband, her fifth husband, hit her. Uh, you know, had, you know, damaged her hearing, um, and it seems like the the, the clerk Jenkin is turning the tables on her. Uh, she's at, at war with him. He's haranguing her the way she used to harangue her husbands. Uh, so it's kind of a, a turnabout is fair play thing here. And he is always telling her about the these store reading these stories about the wicked women. Now here he's using the the authority of his learning in his books. Um, but the wife points out, you know, line seven hundred. By God, if women hadn't written stories as clerks had within their oratories, they would have written of men more wickedness than all the mark of Adam may redress. The children of Mercury and of Venus being in their workings full contrarious. Mercury loveth wisdom and science, and Venus loveth riot and dispense. So clerks and wives, Mercury and Venus, uh, they're kind of uh, enemies. Uh, and again, that's something that kind of plays out in the, the larger context of the Canterbury Tales. Um, so then she tells about all of the, in the same way that she would harangue her husbands with these long stories, He's doing the same to her, this, this book of wicked wives, you know, Eve and Delilah and uh, Zantipa and uh, uh, the wife of Hercules and uh, Clytemnestra and Livia. Uh, it, goes, it goes on and on and on, all of these, these uh, wives that were or women who were wicked and deceived men. Uh, and he's kind of building up a case about how bad women are. And he's been reading this book on and on. In line 795, and when I saw he would never find, he would never end, to reading on this cursed book all night, and suddenly three leaves have I plight out of his book, right as he read, and eke I with my fist so took him on the cheek that in our fire he fell backward down. 
and up he start as doing a wood lion, a crazy lion, and with his fist he smote me on the head, that in the floor I lay as I were dead. And when he saw how still that I lay, he was aghast and would have fled his way, till at last out of my swoon I brayed, Oh, hast thou slain me, false thief, I said, and for my land thus hast thou murdered me, ere I be dead yet will I kiss thee. And ne'er he came and kneeled Pharaoh down and said, Dear sister Alison, as uh, help me God, I, I shall thee never smite that I had uh, done. It is thyself to wit. Forgive me, it me, and that I uh, thee beseek. And yet eftsoons I hit him on the cheek and said, Thief, thus much am I wreck. Now will I die. I may no longer speak. So we get, again, this very... Uh, cantankerous relationship here uh, but she's accusing him you murdered me for my land remember she's she's the rich woman now and he's just a poor clerk notice too that we find out the wife's name is Allison which was the name of the wife in the Miller's Tale and kind of, again these echoes going on um, and she says after this he gave me all the bridle in my hand to have the governance of house and land, and of his tongue and of his hand also, and made him uh, and, and made him burn his book, a right uh, anon, right though, and when that I had given unto me by mastery all the sovereignty, and that he said, mine own true wife, do as thou lest the uh, the term of all thy life. Keep thine honor, and keep also mine estate. After that, we had never debate. God help me so, I was to him as kind as any wife from Denmark unto Eind. So when she gets the sovereignty, there's no... When he kind of gives in, now there's no more problems. I mean, they're, they're really seem to be a loving couple. Um, which again is kind of a, a, a contradiction. She's not... Uh, is it sovereignty? Is it control that she wants? Or is it a true equal relationship? Uh, she never had that with her first husbands. And think of, too, this contradiction. She says that three of her husbands were good and two were bad. But she seen, everything she says suggests that it's the last two who were the good husbands, the ones that she really loved, the ones that were a real challenge to her, that she you know uh, made life exciting. And the good husbands, they were boring. Uh, so again, all these contradictions. Uh, and the the friar jumps in at this point and says, uh, Now, dame, quote thee, so have I joy or bliss. This is a long preamble of a tale. Um, he said, look, what, you really, are, are we getting to the story anytime soon? I think a lot of readers of, of uh, Chaucer may feel that with the wife. Uh, she's very garrulous. She's very talky. Um, but she is going to get to her tale. And so let's get to her tale. Now, the story that the wife tells, it was a traditional story. There were several earlier versions of it. The one was called The Marriage of Sir Gawain and Dame Ragnall. Uh, so this was a, a traditional fairy tale or romance, um, but Chaucer puts his own spin on it. Uh, it. It's in the days of King Arthur. This is very much like Gawain and the Green Knight. I mean, right, we're going back to the days of King Arthur. Uh, in the wife's tale, it's not a specific knight. He's never named. He's just a kind of a generic knight. Um, and the first thing that we see him do 
around line 890, uh, and so befell it that this King Arthur had in his house a lusty bachelor, a young knight, like the squire, he's called a lusty bachelor, uh, the, the knight's son, that on a day came riding from river and happened that alone as he was was born, all alone as he was born, he saw a maid walking him before him, of which maid anon, more girl her heed, by very force he raft her maidenhead. So he rapes her. All right, so automatically we're not in a traditional King Arthur story, right? Uh, King Arthur with chivalry and the, you know, the courtly love and all that, there isn't a lot of raping women. Well, that's the very first thing that happens in the Wife of Bath story. The man rapes a woman. And he's going to be punished. And King Arthur is going to let his wife Guinevere punish him. He gave him to the queen, all at her will, to choose whether she would him save or spill or kill. Uh, and so she gives him a task, the same way that the uh, Sir Gawain had the task in Gawain and the Green Knight. He says, I grant thee life, if thou, this is line 910, I grant thee life, if thou canst tell in me what thing it is that women most desire Beware, and keep thy neck bone from iron, and if thou canst not tell me anon, yet I, yet will I give thee leave for to gone, a twelvemonth and a day to search and learn, and answer a sousiphant in this matter, satisfactory, a sufficient answer. So again, like Gawain and the Green Knight, he has a year to fulfill his quest. Uh, but it doesn't go very easily. He says, uh, around my 9.27, But he could arrive in at no cost, whether as he might find in this matter two creatures according and frere. Some said women love Richard's best, some said honor, some said jolliness, some rich array, some said lust to bed and often to be a widow and wed. Uh, some said that our heart is most eased when that we be ye flattered and ye pleased. Uh, so again, she goes on this long list of all the different things that some people said this, some people said the other thing. He couldn't get any agreement. And then the wife goes on this this tan another tangent, uh, the story of Midas with his donkey's ears, um, and it's she relates this too in in the traditional Greek myth. Uh, the only one who knows that Midas has the donkey ears is his barber. And so his barber goes and whispers it to the, the reeds on the river because he just can't keep it to himself. Uh, but in the wife's version of it, it's Midas' wife who is the gossip, who can't keep the news to herself. We can't uh, keep a council hid. Um, and this brings up an interesting point in both the, the, the tale and the prologue. You know, the wife is is kind of railing against the anti-feminist rhetoric of the time. All of these, you know, the the book of wicked wives that her last husband had, um, and yet at the same time, here's another contradiction. She seems to embody all of those negative stereotypes about women, but she takes them almost as a badge of honor. Uh, what what the wife does with her with her identity is very much like what happened in the in the eighties uh, in the gay and lesbian community. They took the word queer, which had always been a, uh, a derogatory term, and they threw it right back at people. 
You know, their, their thing was, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Uh, so they're not denying or not being afraid of it, but being proud of it. And that's kind of what the wife of Bath is doing. She's taking, well, the women, men say that women are, are, are devious and, uh, kind of trying to control their husband. He says, that's right. We're, we're clever and, and in control. And isn't that great? You know, here's how to do it. Um, again, it's a very interesting contradiction with her. All right. So back to the, the, the quest. Um, our knight sees this these ladies uh, four and twenty dancing in the forest. Now the suggestion here is that this is um, some kind of fairy or elves in the forest, uh, because when he goes there, there's nobody there but this a, a wife, a fowler white. There may no man devise. Now it calls her a wife. But that doesn't mean that she was married. It just means that she's a woman. But again, it, it it's an interesting choice of words because it clearly links her with the wife of Bath who is telling this story. And this old woman, old ugly woman, says, uh, line 1015, Plight me thy troth here in mine hand, quoth she. The next thing that I require thee, thou shalt it do, if it lie in thy might, and I will tell you ere it be, ere it be night. Uh, and he says, Upon my life the queen will say as I. She says, I will give you the answer. I will save your life. But you've got to promise that you're going to do whatever I ask you afterwards. Um, and he agrees to this. Again, this kind of bargain and exchange is very familiar from Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a similar kind of story. And, of course, what he tells uh, the court Line 1045, women desire to have sovereignty as well over their husband as their love, and for to be in mastery him above. That is your most desire, though ye me kill. Uh, Doth as, as you list, I am here at your will. In all the court, no was their wife, no maid, no widow that contraried what he said, but saying he was, uh, he, he was worthy hand his life. So he's earned his life. He's learned what women most desire. And everybody says, yeah, you know, that's right. We, we all do want that. Which is, of course, exactly what the wife has said that she wants. Um, and then the old woman steps up and says, uh, line 1060, Before the court then pray I thee, Sir Knight, quoth she, that thou me take uh, unto thy wife. Uh, for well thou wootst that I have kept thy life. If I say false, say nay upon the, thy faith. This knight answered, Alas, and well away, I wot right well that such was my behest, for God's love, as choose a new request, take all my goods and let my body go. So he's saying, oh, I, will, I know I promised you anything, and I'll give you anything I have, but let my body go. Don't make me sleep with you. Um, and but that's what she wants. That's what she's going to uh, going to get. It says, uh, "Nay, then," quoth she, "I shrew us uh, both two, for though that I be foul and old and poor, I knowed for all the metal now for ore that under earth is is grave and or lieth above. But if thy wife I were and eke thy love." So there's nothing on earth you couldn't give me all of the jewels on the earth. What I want is to be your wife. 
um, and he doesn't want to do this, this is but all for naught, the end is this, that he constrained was, he needs must uh, her wed, and taketh his old wife, and goeth to bed. Um, so he's compelled to marry her, he's made the bargain, he's got to follow through with it, um, and she says, you know, and uh, I, I'm not going to tell you about the big celebration they have because they really didn't have one. They got married quickly and in secret, and the the knight wasn't too all too happy about it. Um, and so then we get the scene with they're on their their wedding night, and the wife asks him, um, uh, "I am your own love and your wife. I am she which that saveth had your life, and certain yet did I you." never unright, so I've never done any wrong to you. Why fare ye thus with me this first night? Ye fare in like a man had lost his wit. What is my guilt? For God's love, tell it. And I, and it shall be amended, if I may. Amended? quoth the knight. Alas, nay, nay, I will not, it will not be amended, never more. Thou art so loathly and so old also, and thereto cometh so low a kind, that little wonder is, though I, that I wail and wind. So he says, you can't amend it. You're loathly. In fact, critics often call this character the, the, the loathly lady. Uh, it means hideous, ugly, uh, awful. Uh, you're, you're ugly, you're old, you're of low birth. I said, well, you know, why do you think I'm not? Uh, uh, liking this. And then the loathly lady gives him a counter-argument. And notice how much this argument, this style of argument, is like what the wife would tell her husbands. She kind of harangues him. There's just, it just, it, it's a long argument. And also, she goes in for... She makes an argument on, that's on her best side and kind of ignores the things that are harder to address. So the first thing that she talks about is gentle ease. You're saying you're of low birth. And says, well, I'm not, no, I am not noble. Um, but that nobility comes from within. Nobility isn't necessarily a birth. You can be a noble person and not have royal blood in your veins. And she goes on and gives a lot of authority. She talks about how Dante says this and all of this. And again, that's the longest part of her argument here. Um, she wraps up around line 1168. Uh, For gentleness cometh from God alone. Then cometh our very gentleness of grace. It, uh, it was no thing bequeath us with our place. Uh, she says the line 1178 uh, that he is gentle that doeth gentle deeds and therefore lever husband I thus conclude all were it mine ancestry were in rude yet may the high God and so hope I grant me grace to live in virtuously so she really got him on that part you know well you're not even of noble birth he says well is that really the most important thing? Isn't true nobility come from from within? Isn't it a gift of God's grace? Um, hard to argue that. And then she goes to the idea that she's poor. 
Uh, and there, as ye of uh, poverty me reprove, the high God on whom that we believe, in willful poverty, chose to live his life. And certain every man, maiden, or wife may understand that Jesus, heaven's king, now would not choose a vicious living. So she's saying, uh, poverty? Um, well, you know, I know somebody else who was poor. Jesus. Um, so she's, she's got him there, too. Um, it says line, and she, she has not just the argument from the you know, scriptural precedent, but a logical argument. She says line 1195, but he that uh, not hath, no covetousness have, is rich, although we hold him but a knave. I said, look, if you don't covet anything, you're a rich man, no matter how much money you have. Uh, like like nobility, uh, poverty is something more of an inner state than an uh, than an outward thing. And notice she spends a long time on the idea of nobility, quite a long time on poverty. But when she gets the idea of being old and ugly, she goes those she goes through those really really fast, right? Uh, she says, uh, "Now, sir of eld, ye me reprove." And certain, sir, though none authority were in no book, yet gentles of honor, saying that men should an old white do in favor. It says, you're supposed to respect your elders, right? Not not criticize them. It says, now there you say that I am foul and old, then dread ye not to be in a cuckold. It says, well, okay, so yes, I'm ugly and old. Well, I'm not likely to sleep around. You, you know, you'll have a faithful wife. For filth and eld, also mot I thee, being great wardens upon chastity. Uh, now that's a pretty quick and a pretty weak argument. He says, well, yeah, I'm ugly, but no other man will want to sleep with me, and so that's good. But then she turns the tables even more. She gives him another a choice. She says, choose now, quoth she, one of these things tway, to hand me foul and old till that I die, and be to you a true, humble wife, and never you displease in all my life. Or else ye will have me young and fair, and take your adventure of the repair that shall be to your house by cause of me. So, on the one hand, you can have me old and ugly, but I'll be faithful and devoted and uh, an obedient good wife to you. Or, you can have me young and beautiful and sexy, and who knows who might come and want to sleep with me. Um, it says, uh, now choose yourself whether, whether that ye liketh. So she gives him the choice. And the knight adviseth him, and sore sigheth. But at last he said in this manner, My lady and my love and wife so dear, I put me in your wise governance. Choose yourself, which may be most pleasant, and most honor to you and me also. I do not force the wither of the two, for as you liketh, it sufficeth me. Uh, now, I think the knight is doing the smart thing here. He's not, he's not about to get stuck into that argument, right? You're not going to pick one or the other. And he says, well, you know... Why don't you choose? This is an impossible choice for me to make, so why don't you make it? She says, Then have I got of you mastery, quoth she, since I may choose and govern as me list? Yes, certain's wife, he said, I hold it best. 
So here again, the idea of sovereignty. He's given over control to her. And she says, kiss me, quoth she, we be no longer wroth. For by my troth, I will be to you both, that is to say, in ye both fair and good. So she's going to, because he gave her the the choice, let, it let her decide how things were going to go. She says, look, I will be both beautiful and a good, obedient, faithful wife. You'll have, you'll get to have it all. Um and when he looks at her, he sees she has been changed, that she was so fair was and so young there too. For joy he hent her in his armist too, her, uh, his heart bathed in a bath of bliss. A thousand times a rue he gan her kiss. And she obeyed him in everything that might do him pleasance or liking. And thus they live unto their lives' end in perfect joy. Now look at that, the when she's gotten the mastery, it's just like the relationship with uh, between the wife and Jenkin. Once she has that control, she's completely obedient. She obeys him, you know, uh, in everything, uh, and they live happily ever after. The way you're supposed to at the end of a fairy tale is, and Jesu Christ does send husbands meek, young, and fresh abed, and grace to overbide them that we wed. And eke, I pray, Jesus, short their, uh, their lives that naught will be governed by their wives. And old and angry niggards of dispense, God send them soon a very pestilence. Um, now here again, the, there's the contradictions in the, in the wife and how she feels. Um, she wants mastery, but she also wants true love. And she says here, you know, God send us a meek young husbands who are good in bed and that we can control. The interesting thing about the, or one interesting thing about the wife of Bastille is it's a fantasy fulfillment for her. The, the man's fantasy is fulfilled. He has the beautiful and faithful wife. But also you can see this as a wish fulfillment from the wife of Bath's point of view. She gets to be beautiful and young again. Um, it, it, that's kind of what that's kind of what she wants. Uh, so the the very idea that there is a thing that women most desire it, it's the, the the central point of this story. But especially in the context of the wife of Bath's prologue, it's shown to be something that's. Uh, it's not true. There's not one thing that people want, that women want, that men want, that any one person wants. Uh, we have these multiple conflicting desires. We want things, and we want the opposite things, too. Um, the, the, the wife, Bath, is a character very much about desire and very much about conflicting desires. Uh, she wants to have sovereignty, but she also wants a man who fights against her. Uh, she kind of loves the the, the battle. Um, it, it's again a wonderfully complicated and contradictory character. Uh, there aren't a lot of women in the uh, in the Canterbury Tales. There's just the the, the wife of Bath and the prioress and the nun, uh, but the wife of Bath seems to have them all outnumbered. Uh, she's in some ways the most vivid character, and her the relationship between her 
prologue and her tale is, I think, the most complicated of any in the Canterbury Tales. Uh, you really, if you just read her tale, it wouldn't have nearly the impact, it wouldn't have nearly the psychological insight it does if you've read the prologue. And on the other hand, reading the tale gives you new insight into the wife's life story and her her philosophy of life. Uh, they kind of mutually inform each other in a really subtle and beautiful way. Uh, so that's uh, that's the wife of Bath and her tale. Uh, next time we're going to be taking up the Pardoner. This is the last of the Canterbury Tales we'll be reading for the term. Uh, when you're looking at the Pardoner's tale, I want you to think, as with the wife of Bath's tale, the way that the prologue interacts with the tale. Um, think about how you would read the tale differently if you hadn't heard the Pardoner's prologue. Uh, because actually, the story, the tale that he tells, is one that he, it's a kind of his standard sermon that he gives when he's out selling his indulgences, his pardons. And it must be effective. He's a very successful, as we know from his portrait in the general prologue. But it turns out not to be so successful with this crowd. And think about why that is. Uh, there's a very negative reaction to his story. And why is that? Why do people react so with such a strong and negative way to a story that obviously other people must react to positively because he makes money off of it? Um, so think about that. Another image to uh, another thing to look at in the uh, the partner's tale is the image of bones. Uh, so look at all the references to to bones and how those are used both in the prologue and in the tale. Uh, all right, so we'll be talking about that for next time. Uh, I, if you have questions about uh, the wife of Bath or the partner or anything we're talking about, you can email me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. We'll talk next time.